This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Hello and welcome back. I hope you're having a great week. I'm very excited for today's episode. We sit down with my good friend, Daniel Brown. We talk about the Burr method, hard money, getting creative in your financing, how to flip properties, and a lot more. We also dive into um, how he purchased five properties, five houses, and he walked away with 150000 in equity and 1600 in cash flow from those properties. And he's really an expert about leaving little to no money in the deal. So I highly recommend listening to this one if you don't have a lot of startup capital or you're trying to go in light on deals. This is a great one to listen to. But before all that, we're going to dive into today's golden nugget. Today's golden nugget of the day is to pick one strategy and go full force with it. In today's episode, we talk a lot about staying in your lane. It's easy for investors, myself included, to get sidetracked with what we call shiny object syndrome. Daniel talks about how he started doing cryptocurrency and actively investing in the stock market, and this kept him from his main passion and skill, which is real estate investing. So if you're struggling to gain traction in one area of business, maybe you're trying to do too much. So with that out of the way, I want to introduce today's guest. Today's guest, Daniel Brown, is an owner at Brown & Robertson Real Estate, a real estate agency in Springfield, Missouri. He has been investing over the last four years with a focus on single-family residences. His goal is to use as little of his money as possible in his deals. So without further ado, here's episode four of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. Welcome to the show, Daniel. How are you doing? Good, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. I'm glad to have you on. So can you tell the folks a little bit more about your background, how you got started specifically in real estate? Yeah, for sure. So um, I actually worked in sales right out of high school. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, honestly, in life. I was just kind of like, I thought about going to college, then I didn't. I was going to go to graphic design school, and then I switched to like auto body repair because I liked working on cars. And then I found out that's terrible to do eight hours a day. Um, So I got into sales, and then uh, I worked for uh, AT&T, actually, in their corporate sales. And um, I was just kind of chugging along, kind of doing what I think everybody in like life was supposed to do. Like I got married, was going to have a kid, you know, bought a house, got a bunch of debt, all that good stuff. And then like one day I just woke up and I was like, man, I am, I am miserable. Like, this is not what I like envisioned my life to be sitting in a cubicle, like dealing with customer service, phone calls. Um, I just kind of woke up, like I said, I woke up and just realized how unhappy I was. And so I just started really digging into, um, kind of how to get out of the rat race, you know, and uh, stumbled upon Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is like a life-changing book for me personally. And um, I was actually talking with my agent who I'd bought my house with. Um, He's also a local agent. And I was like, hey, man, I'm thinking about getting into like some rentals. And I think, you know, you do that. Can you kind of help me out? And he's like, sure, let's meet at this house. And my plan was to just start buying rental property and being like, you know, uh, accumulating over time. And I met with him and uh we looked at this house and when I walked up, I was like, Hey, how's it going? Or he, he was like, Hey, how are you doing today? And you know, like nine out of 10 times, most people are like, fine. How are you doing? No matter how they're feeling. It's just, yeah, I'm doing good. How are you? And uh, this was that one out of 10 time where I was like, I am terrible. I'm miserable. Like, I don't know why I unloaded on him, but I was just literally like, dude, I am miserable. I hate what I'm doing. My life is just 
I don't know. I just feel like I'm in a rat race. And he was like, Whoa, okay, let's talk about that before we look at this house. And we just had a real conversation. He's like, why are you doing what you're doing? And I was like, it's good money. And he's like, you can make good money in real estate. You're good with people. You know, it's a sales job. Basically. He's like, why don't you just do that? And I was like, you know, that does sound pretty good. And so I just walked in the next day and quit my corporate job right then and there. I was like, I'm out of here. I had like no savings, like no, nothing. I was just like, I quit. And I went to real estate school, passed the test like two weeks later. And got into real estate and just figured it out. Like I had to, I didn't have any, any backup plan. Well, that's an awesome story. I've known you for a little bit and I did not know that about your background. It just goes to show like if you're open with people, if you're transparent, they can open doors for you. They can really help you out and put you in places you didn't know you could have been before. So, but we have to be honest with ourselves and with others. Yeah. A thousand percent. I, I heard somewhere that like the teacher arrives when the student is ready. And like, I believe that a hundred percent, like once you you're kind of open and put it out there, like stuff just happens. Exactly. Exactly. So I know the topic of our show is going to be, you know, investing, be, getting creative, doing flips, doing hard money, doing burrs. And mm-hmm. that may be a lot of lingo for people who don't know. And we'll definitely unpack that. So I want to start out by just talking about your investing career so far. What's your portfolio look like? Where are you at? And where are you headed from here? Yeah, so I am in the like hoarding slash accumulating stage is what I call it. So I'm just trying to, my ultimate goal is just to gain as many cash flowing rental properties as possible. Um, Right now, my main uh, portfolio is single family, Um, just single family doors in Springfield. Um, I've got 20 seven doors now. And then, um, I've got an apartment building that's 24 units. Um, and then we're doing on average four flips right now, a month ish on average. So, um, sometimes we do a couple more, sometimes we do a couple less, but we're trying to average about four a month that are constantly being uh, renovated. And when I say flips, we do a lot of, uh, but more like rehab, like we strip it down to the studs, redo wiring, plumbing, all that good stuff. So we don't do a ton of like paint and carpet. I'd love to, um, but we just don't seem to run into a bunch of those with the type of flips that I do. So, um, and where we're going is uh, mine is more of a cash flow goal. Um, I don't really care. I, if I had five doors or 5,000 doors, I really don't care. That number is not important to me. Uh, it's the monthly net income that matters to me the most. And I'm sure once I hit that number, there'll be a bigger number. Um, Because I remember there was a time in my life where I was like, man, if I made like a thousand dollars extra, that would be incredible. And then I got to that and I was like, you know, if I made like 5,000, that would be awesome. And then I got to that and it just, it just kind of builds, you know, your goals get bigger, the bigger you get. So. Yeah. No, that's a really impressive portfolio even because I know you started out just what, four years ago in investing. Yeah. Three, three and a half, four years ago at this point. Um, is when I bought my first like project. Okay. So I know you focus a lot on getting in light on deals and by light, I mean, having little to no money in the deal. Co- so can you kind of expound on that and why that's super important? Sure. So um, for me, uh, it's kind of more of a game in a weird way. It's kind of like, how can I find or acquire as much property as possible without spending any of my own money? If, if any at all, um, my first, my first deal, I did uh, just a traditional 20% down, super cheap house. So we can talk about that one more too, but that one was uh, just a super cheap 20% down. And then I did a home equity on it and bought my next property. And then when I did that, I bird that one and got it uh, on the secondary market. And then after that, I met somebody who did it with hard money and they were like, oh, you don't have to put in your own, like you don't have to save 20%. You don't have to do any of that. And I'm like, 
well, how do I do that? Because, it, you know, I've, I bought my first rental property when I was making $32,000 a year. So to save 20% was like, I mean, to me, almost impossible at the time. So I had to just find other ways to do it because I just didn't have the capital to, to do it. So it's another one of those, just kind of figure it out because you've got to figure it out things. So, and then since then, now it's become a game. Like, how can I buy a package of 10 houses and not spend any money? How can I spend 200 grand without spending any of my own money kind of stuff? So now it's more of a game. Yeah. So I want to go back to that first deal. So you put 20% down and then you let the value kind of build up. Then you took a HELOC on that to get your down yeah. back. So I bought a, it was a three, one on the West side of town and I bought it for 21,000 <laughs> and I put 20% down, which was basically nothing. Um, and then I did all the work myself for the first 15 ish flips. I literally had a truck and trailer. I would work, you know, my real estate gig from nine to whatever until I stopped showing property. And then I would, I would get in and do the work myself. I, my first house, I did the roof. I remodeled a bathroom, all the flooring, drywall, like literally everything in the house. Um, and then I got it appraised for, I think, 95, pulled out a home equity line for 75. And then I bought my neighbor's house because they were boarding up the windows one day. And I was like, what are you doing? And they're like, we live in Joplin. This was a rental. We are so tired of this, like renting. It's just awful. And I was like, well, I'll buy your house. And they're like, oh, okay, well, what do you give us for? I was like, I paid 20 for mine. I'll give you 20 for yours. And they're like, deal. I was like, deal. And uh, I did the same thing. I did all the work myself. I put like six grand in it. It appraised for another, I think 95. And I got a, and then I combined the two and got one big credit line. And that's how I started buying up properties and then turning them. Yeah, that's a great way to get started is put in that sweat equity and create the value through, yeah. you know, so do you, do you recommend people start out by working on their own properties like you did, or would you change that if you could go back in time? I would, it's a two-part answer. Um, I 100% appreciate that I did all the work myself because when I meet a contractor and he's like, it's X amount of dollars, I'm like, no, it's not. Or if they're working a week and I walk in and I'm like, dude, I could have done this in two days. Like, what are you doing? So there was definitely some like life experience and learning those types of things, which is great. Um, but on the flip side, now I realize how much time I spent working on those houses when I could have literally paid somebody maybe another five or $6,000, they could have done all the work and I could have been doing other more productive activities. So I think it's a 50, 50, like I would definitely probably at least do the first one, like get, get in there, watch some YouTube videos, figure out how to fix stuff. Um, so you just have kind of a real understanding of stuff, but try to get hired help as quickly as possible because you really need to be finding deals and putting them together. You don't need to be painting walls and fixing toilets. Like that's a low producing, you know, income activity. So. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's okay. And it's acceptable at the start, but if you want to scale, then it's not feasible yeah. to be doing those types of tasks. So I know you talked about the HELOC and using, you know, your equity in these properties to buy more properties, but in addition to that, what other kind of creative strategies have you stumbled upon and that you're using today to buy more properties? So the, the two main ones that I use is I, uh, I, uh, use hard money. So I'll find a property. Um, I'll go to one of my hard money lenders. I'll buy the property and get the rehab money as well. Um, the hard money lender I have doesn't require me to put any money into it. Some do, some require 10%, some require, you know, 70 of the purchase and 10% of the repair or whatever. Um, my personal hard money lender does not require any of that. So I literally go to them and I'm like, Hey, I need 85,000, 10 for repairs, 75 for purchase. They 
get it to the title company. I close on it. I do the work. Um, I have, actually I have it scheduled. Uh, my person goes in, they do everything that I ask as far as the rehab. And then I refinance it and pull the money out and stick a render in there um, and have positive cash flow. Anything over 250 a month or more is what I shoot for. 250 is like my bare bones minimum. And the only reason I'll go that low is if it's like a great location or it's like an appreciation play or something like that. Um, and then the other way um, is uh, syndication. That's how I bought my apartment. Um, I also have no money in it. Um, and what I did was I found the deal. And I brought it to a couple of investors and I was like, Hey, I'll take 30% of this building because I found the deal and I'll forego half of my commission because of it to create the ownership. They're the ones that ended up bringing the down payment, all that good stuff. And so I own 30% of that by basically just finding the deal. So I think using partners in the right way is, is a good way to do it. You just have to know who you're partnering with and make sure that you guys are all in the same line of thinking, like, Hey, we're going to hold this apartment for at least five years possibly refinance it and then purchase more. And so far the deal's going really well and they want me to find more buildings and we're probably going to accumulate more. So it's another way to just get in without any money. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't put anything into that one other than my time. Yeah. I would argue that finding the deal makes you one of the most valuable players on the team, if not the most valuable, because there's plenty of people out there with money, but not everyone is willing to find that deal like you did. And you got rewarded for it by having no money in it. And you're benefiting today from that effort, right? Thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just a check that comes in every month. You know, I I talk to people a lot and I joke and I'm like, the money is probably the easiest part. And most, I think beginning investors or people that don't do it on the regular think the money is the hardest part. And it's really not money's everywhere. It's finding the deal, a good enough deal. You can literally turn around in a couple hours if it's a good enough deal. So don't let the money hang up, find the deal. (laughs) So on that topic, I know you mentioned you use hard money. And for those who are unaware of what that is, can you explain? Sure. Yeah. So hard money is in its simplest form, somebody, a person or a company that has enough money that they would like to loan it out, just like a bank. Um, It's generally cash that they're loaning out or a self-directed IRA, something like that. Um, You go to them and you're like, hey, I'd like to purchase a property. And then they loan it to you based on terms, just like going to a bank and getting a loan, except you're getting it from an individual. Now, nine times out of 10, the interest rate is much higher. You've got um, sometimes a fee just for borrowing the money. Um, And they're usually short-term notes. So you don't want to like take it out for a year. Usually 30 to 90 days is kind of the sweet spot. Um, and then you pay a fee and a higher percentage, but you literally have access to money just like that. You know, it's literally just cash and there's no red tape. Generally, you don't have to have a credit check. You don't have to have any of that kind of, you don't have an appraisal. There's like really nothing other than your relationship with that person. The hard money person I started with, I've been with them three and a half years. Um, when I first started, it was, Hey, send me comps. Hey, send me a list of repairs, do this, that, or the other. My very last project, I called her and I told her the number and she's like, yeah, I'll have a check, but I'm going out of town. Can you just go by my house and pick it up? Like, didn't ask me any details, literally like, how much do you need? And I just went and got it, which that's just three years of doing the right thing, making sure that like, I take care of her over everything. Like if something has to be done, like I will go paint walls to make a deal work to make sure that I pay her note back and to make sure that she makes the money that she's, she's wanting. So to me, she's the ultimate player in this game. Um, and for me, it's, you know, finding the deals. So hard money lenders are a great relationship to have. Yeah, it's definitely a relationship to build. You'll probably find if you're doing it for the first time that your hard money lender will want more upfront. They might want you to 
perform more diligent due diligence and more documentation like receipts, lien waivers and such. But I think you can vouch for this, that as you get going, they get much more comfortable with you and start trusting you more. Oh yeah. Right. A thousand percent. As soon as they know that you can follow through with what you're going to say, that's the big thing, you know, follow through with the purchase, what you're, uh, what rehab you're doing and then being spot on with your numbers, you know, like when you're like, Hey, this is the AVR, this is what's going to be worth after we make other repairs. If you're like, it's 105 to 110 and it comes in at 105 or 110, three or four times in a row, they're going to be like, okay, he knows like what he's doing. Like he's not overshooting. That's the worst. I think one of the worst things people can do is underestimate repairs and then overestimate value. Yeah. It's only going to take 10 grand. It's going to be worth 200. And then it ends up spending 40 and it's worth 150. Like you've literally like done the complete opposite of what you want. So. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be conservative in your estimates to gain the respect of, you know, your lender or your end buyer, if you're going to wholesale it or flip it, you want to be true to your word on those things. So you mentioned earlier in the show that the economy is just flush with cash. There's money everywhere. So what can we do as investors for our off-market sellers? Because the traditional way is say, hey, I have a cash offer for you, but the cash offer is not as strong as it used to be. So what are people wanting nowadays and how can we tailor our offers to suit that change? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Cash used to be kind of King. It was like, Hey, I've got cash. And everybody was like, Oh my God, I'll take yours. Um, But now it's, it's definitely changed a lot. I think first, the biggest thing is to talk to the, to the seller. If it's an off market property, that's your first, your best bet, you know, finding something before everybody else does um, is the first thing. And then once you do find that, just having a conversation with that seller, sometimes buying it outright for more money is not in their best interest. Sometimes, especially once you start buying like packages, you know, two, three, four, five homes at a time, sometimes it's, Hey, let's, you know, do owner financing on half and I'll give you half up front. or, Hey, I'll buy one, every quarter for the next four quarters. Um, Sometimes just having real conversations with them and figuring out why they're doing what they're doing can get you the deal over, Hey, I'm just going to offer you more money than the next guy. Cause sometimes that just doesn't matter to people, which sounds strange, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, If you're uh, if you are finding on market properties, or if you find something on the MLS or you're using an agent, then it's just having a conversation with that agent and being like, Hey, find out why they're doing what they're doing. Like, do they need rent back for 30 days for 60 days, you know, do they want split payments? Like it just depends on, I think ultimately what the seller wants and figuring out that information. That's, that's how I do not only my residential uh, or my, my investing, but that's also teach all of our agents when we do residential offers. Cause sometimes they're not offering cash either. They've got an FHA loan or a USDA loan or something else. And I'm like, you've got to get in there and find out why they're doing what they're doing, build a relationship and solve a problem. That's all we do is we just solve problems all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Cause it may not be cash is their solution because they may not want to pay a bunch of taxes right now, or they may not need all the money right now. I think also you could pitch it as, you know, no realtor commissions, which I know if you're an agent that doesn't make you too happy, but if you're the one buying the deal and making yeah. money off it, then it doesn't quite matter. Yeah. Or also like no repairs, you know, selling it as yeah. is that's a big kicker for a lot of people. Yeah. That's, I mean, 
I think if you're an investor, you should get your license because A, you get access to the MLS. You, there's a bunch of advantages. But the other one is if you do buy an on-market property, you can do that. You can be like, hey, I won't even take my commission. Just you do whatever you want. If you want to take all of it you know, to the other agent, if you want to take all of it, if you want to give your seller a break and take only half, that's great. Um, it gives you more options. Um, and like you said, I mean, there's sometimes people just don't care about money overall. Like I just bought one in a great neighborhood. Hey, uh, it's a it's a three, two, two with two living rooms in decent shape. Um, I got it for 90,000 and I literally told them, I was like, you can put this on the market today and get 120, like all day long without making any repairs. I was like, if you do make repairs, you'll probably get 150 or 160. And they're like, but you'll buy it like in two weeks, cash, no questions, just whatever, just straight up. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, okay, well, we'll go with that because we just, it's in a trust. There's multiple people involved. We just want to get it done. And I'm like, okay, as long as you understand, here's the kind of three options. They're like, yeah, we're good. So that's what they needed. They needed quick and easy. Yeah. And you're very high integrity for even mentioning that because a lot of wholesalers, deal finders want to kind of maybe hide the true value and just get the good deal. So you're kind of playing that how to win friends and influence people approach of backing out of it almost and saying, are you sure you want to do this? And I think people respect that more. Would you agree? Oh yeah. hundred percent. And like, that's, that's how I've always kind of ran my business. It's like, I want, I, I want to take care of people. Like one of the reasons I flip Northside properties so much is like, I love revitalizing North Springfield. Like I just hate driving around our town and seeing these crappy neighborhoods. And so, yeah, I probably don't make as much or it's more headaches, but like, I love that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, what is that classic? Get, as, get people what they want. And you'll get what you want kind of thing. I believe that a hundred percent. So Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, um, our town, the north side is a little more challenged economically and there are more distressed properties there. So I want to ask you maybe for even my own selfish reasons, are you flipping properties up there? Are you holding like, what's your strategy on those type of really distressed properties in low income communities? So that actually goes to anything that I do. It's always about the numbers. Like I don't, the location, yeah, it does determine a small portion of it for me but I do both. So some, I will uh, keep, do a buy and hold. If, if I buy them cheap enough and put little into them, then I'll go ahead and keep the, my equity has to be much higher. If I'm going to keep them, if um, my equity is pretty low um, or my cash flow is going to be pretty low, then I just go ahead and flip them, pull the money and put them in something else. So like I bought one, for example, um, it was a Northside property. I bought it for 20. I put 10 in it and it rents for seven twenty five. So my mortgage is like 200 and something at cash flows, 500 plus that one I kept, I could have easily sold it and probably made 45, 50,000. But to me, you know, 700 a month, that'll add up real quick to where that, that equity, I'd rather take the monthly payments over a long period than just that fat check once at once in a while. So it's just all about the numbers. Like I don't really care too much about the the location. I know that a lot of areas are improving. Um, so yeah, it's just all about the numbers. Right. Right. Yeah. You definitely want to stick close to the numbers and not get too emotional about it or yeah. Yeah. You, cause you're in business to make money yeah, and make profit. So yeah. 100%. Why do you think there's such a shortage of inventory right now? I know as your career with an agent, you you're fully aware of that. Yeah. And as an investor as well, and how can hungry investors get out there and convince sellers to sell to them at a discount? Yeah, that's it's a super interesting time. I think actually, um, I think a couple of main reasons that the inventory is so low, uh, you talked about it earlier that there's just, I mean, there was an influx in cash. I mean, a lot of people are doing really well, but 
the the problem I think really was, especially with what recently happened with COVID, is the people that could buy houses kept their jobs. Like anybody that was already in a position to probably buy a house was pretty much okay. But people that were renters generally were the ones I think were affected the most, you know, servers um, in the hospitality industry, those that demographic of people probably weren't quite ready to buy anyways. And so they were already just renting. You add on top of that, that now you've got people that really weren't affected by it. They still had their regular jobs um, and the government basically reducing interest rates to nothing. Now it's like, okay, I still have my job. Um, I can purchase. And now on top of that, I can purchase at an extremely discounted rate um, because of interest rates has caused a huge influx in buyers that are just eating up the inventory. is I think kind of the main couple of things that, that have caused that. Now with investors trying to find properties and get them still at a decent price, I think that still goes back to just, you've got to find out why they're, like I said, why they're doing what they're doing. I don't think you can, I know there was a time where you could literally go in and buy new construction and it was cash flowing. Like you could literally go and buy in a newer neighborhood, put 20% down and, and it would work. That's not the case now. Um, so you're, you're just having to hunt kind of harder for those deals and then talk directly with sellers, try to try to find it before it hits the market. As soon as it hits the market, I mean, I've bought some on market the last six months, but a majority of my stuff comes before it ever gets in front of more than two or three people. Right, right. So you mentioned you don't do a lot of purchasing on market, but I know you help, you know, sellers and buyers buy and sell properties on the market. Can you explain how your real estate agent career helps you on the investing side? Um, it's a couple of things. One is, and this is going to be, I guess, kind of a common theme for me. It's just, it's relationships. So I, I talk to a ton of agents and a lot of agents know what I do like via Facebook or whether we talk or I've held some like investing seminars just to like help people out. Um, so if a deal does come up that they don't want to list, or they know of a couple that has like three rental houses and they're ready to unload them. Like I usually get calls on that a lot. That's where I get a ton of my properties is other agents. They literally call me. So if I wasn't an agent, they might not know who I am. They may not have ran into me at like a board event or something. So I think that's one um, big advantage. The other is when we do get listing appointments, sometimes we walk in and it's a turd, like it's just a terrible house. And I'm like, are you sure you want to list this? Or like, do you want to do a bunch of work? Or do you just want to like get rid of this thing? Um, and a lot of times I'm like, Hey, one out of 10, how honest do you want me to be one being like me sugarcoat this and 10 being 1000% honest. And they'll be like, give it to me as a 10. I'm like, okay, I will offer you 20,000 for this house. And I would probably take it right now because it's going to take too much time and work and effort to get it listed. So we pick up some houses that way too. Um, we always tell them what it's worth on the market, what it's going to take to fix it. And I literally give them a sheet that they sign off on saying that we gave them all, all that information. Cause I never want anything to come back to be like, Oh, well you told my grandma it was only worth 20 and that's why she took your deal. Like, why weren't you honest with her? Um, so we just give them the information and then let them make a decision. So I think those two things really help being an agent. And then of course you have access to the MLS, which is awesome. You can set up searches. You can kind of see stuff before it hits the market. Um, you just get access to a lot of things that just a regular, ordinary, you know, non-agent person has access to. Right. Yeah. I think educating the seller on their options is key because a lot of people think that, oh, I'll just have, I just have to list it with an agent. That's the only way to sell. And, you know, they might be getting mail from investors or see advertisements, but they might not really take that seriously because they think it's like a scam or cash offer. Are you crazy? 
right. sell it as is. Are you crazy? And so if you come in and you offer multiple exit strategies, multiple solutions, you can really set yourself far and above your competition. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. So do you have any last remarks before we kind of enter into the last half of our show about just investing, getting creative, anything like that? Um, I think I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, if you want, I could run through just like one example of a package that I bought or I don't know if yeah, that's do you want to do a deal uh, analysis? Yeah, so like I wrote this one out because I, I thought this might be something that we would go over, but just to give people like an idea of like a no money kind of situation and what you okay. can kind of get out of that. So, so I bought five houses um, as a package. I bought them for 185,000. So 37 a door basically. Um, and I always do averages. Like I don't look at like, Oh, this house is worth 40 and this is worth 20. I kind of look at averages and in my mind, anything's worth 30, like to a degree, as long as it has a foundation and walls, like right. to a degree. Um, I have kind of like, so I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. I have a, Sometimes I have a weird way of looking at things, or at least people tell me they never look at it this way. I'm always kind of like looking for gaps and things. So let's put that example on hold for just a second. But I bought, I looked at a property that was listed for 30,000. I ran the quick comps in my mind before I went and looked at it and it easily would comp for like 130. And so I was like, I'm going to go check that out in two seconds. And so I went and I looked at it. I walked through, it was a two story. I got through the first story and I was like, I'll take it. And, um, I basically, uh, I, I bought it right then and there. And then, um, I got a call from another agent who saw that it went pending and they're like, Hey, did you buy that? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, man, I'll walk through it. And I'm constantly, I, it's just, it's so much work. Like, I just can't believe like, how, how'd you decide to buy it? And I was like, look, it in my mind is worth 130. They're selling it for 30. That means there's a hundred thousand dollars worth of cushion. Like who's going to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a house aside from completely pushing it over and rebuilding it. You know, like, let's say I spend 50 which is, that's a lot to spend on a rehab. There's still 50 in profit. And the agent was literally like, I never looked at it that way. And I'm like, well, how did you look at it? Like, to me, that's the only way to look at it. It's like, hey, there's this much room. Worst case scenario, I spend 70 and I still make 30, you know? So as long as I'm okay with those kind of variables, then I'll make the purchase and figure it out on the back end. And like I said, that may be a weird way to look at it, but that's just how I look at it. And I literally bought that one sort of sight unseat. I was just like, let's go. Like didn't even run, you know, estimate on repairs and that kind of stuff. So back to this example, uh, like I said, I, I work on averages. So I bought them for 37 a door. Um, I ended up putting around 20 a door. I've spent 30 on one, 19 on another, 20 on one, 28. So I basically spent anywhere from 25 to 30 a door. Um, and then from that, so I've, I've got 282,000 all in. Um, I sold one of them for 94.5, another one for 110 and one for 75. So that paid off um, all the notes. And I ended up with three houses outright. Uh, one of them is worth 95 and rents for 700. Uh, the one on Webster, it rents for 650. And then I've got one that rents for 750. Basically, I've got about 150,000 in properties that I own outright. And I've got around 1600 a month in cash flow. And the way I did that was I got a hard money loan for the 185 and then I fixed up the properties individually. So I borrowed, you know, the first 30 for the first property, turned around and sold it, paid back a little bit. Uh, I paid back the 30 plus a little bit on the 185 and then I moved on to the next one and I did the same thing, borrowed another 30, sold it, paid off a little bit more of that 185 and then so on and so on. And so by the end of it, um, by the third property, everything was paid off, including the money that was borrowed for the rehab. So that was just a quick, like, 
basically package that I bought with hard money, um, rehabbed all of them and ended up with, like I said, around 150,000 in equity plus, um, about 1600 a month in cash flow. Wow. And that's a really money. impressive package. So you sold three of the five houses and then you mm-hmm. kept the remaining two. Uh, correct. Yes. Okay. So what were the kind of the profit numbers you mentioned? You sold one for 94, five, 110,000, and then 75. So if you're in each one for 57, which was your 37 basis, and then the 20 in rehab, that's, that's over 40,000 of profit on each one. Um, so that's how you got the 150,000 of profit. Yeah. Because I still own the additional others. Right. Um, Outright. So I just look at that as like, Hey, that's that much more net worth that I have because I own those. Right. Yeah. And uh, for the ones you kept, were you able to burr out of those? So by the time I got to those two, I didn't have to because the profit from the other ones paid off everything. So those, I I just own outright. Um, If I would have got down to like the last fourth or fifth one and I had to burr it, then I would have like burred for 20 or 30 or 40, whatever it was to kind of pay off the remaining balance. And then I'd have, you know, a two or $300 payment for three houses. Is there a reason you went ahead and just paid off those two rather than put a loan on it? I'm other than you already, you had the cash ready to go there. Um, so the way that I look at it and the way I do my, my portfolio borrowing is I go to my lender every year at the beginning of the year and I give him my taxes and I'm like, tell me how much I can borrow. And he just gives me a number based on my taxes. And uh, so he's like, let's just say he's like, you can borrow half a million this year. So then my entire goal for the rest of the year is to maximize that 500,000. So if I can, and and every time I burr or pull money back out, I'm eating into that 500,000. So anything that I can either pay off with flips or buy outright, I will. So that way I have access to that money to continue to accumulate. Cause right now my goal is to, to basically spread that money out as far as possible, gain as many doors with that 500,000 as I can. So if I can pay stuff off or not necessarily burr out of it and have it paid off, then I'll do that. Cause I just, I'm just in the accumulation stage at some point that'll change, but right now it's buy as much as possible. Yeah. Well, that's an awesome deal. I think we'll have to put that in the title or something that actual numbers on that. So that's a big takeaway right there. Um, So the last part of our show is called the triple threat. Um, This is a section of the show where we ask the same three questions to each guest. And um, the first one is what is the app tool or resource that has been the biggest game changer for your business? So for me, um, social media and like, it's not really an app, but mainly Facebook, honestly, has been the biggest one for me because it, it gets my message out there to a ton of people. There are so many times when I will just do a, I love doing video walkthroughs of before and afters and being like, look at this terrible thing. And then look what we did to it. People love seeing those, you know, anyways. Um, but it just keeps my face and name out in front and people being like, oh yeah, he buys and sells houses. I mean, I can't tell you how many Facebook messages I get or, you know, just direct connections from that. So for me, social media, um, I try to use it more and more. Austin, who's my business partner, does an incredible job with it. I'm trying to do more of it. But yeah, I'd say social media and, and even more so Facebook is to me the biggest tool because it's it's how I find um, the deals themselves. Yeah. If you can find a platform, for example, like myself podcasting this effort to build this up, you can really eventually attract money partners and business partners to help find fun deals with you. So it's a, it's a big thing. It has some learning curve, obviously, but you can, 
hire it out, hire an assistant to do it for you, or find some tools that can like schedule your social media posts out. So it's a lot easier on you, but yeah, especially right now, social media is huge and just having your face top of mind with people. Yeah, absolutely. So the second one is what has been your biggest failure in the last year? And why do you think that happened? Yeah. So that one I had to think about for a minute. And I, I want to say this in the right way. Like I've been really lucky. I think over the last couple of years, we haven't had any catastrophes of any kind, like luckily. And so I thought about it a little bit more. And one of the things that I finally thought about was um, for a little while there, I was getting into the Bitcoin, the crypto craze, stock trading. I have some friends that are big on stock and I understand it to a degree, but I don't think to the level that you need to like make money on it. And what I realized was you need to constantly be learning, constantly be finding new things. There's always something new to learn, but sometimes it's also good to just stay in your own lane. I actually lost quite a bit of money through stock and crypto over the last couple of months because I just didn't understand it as much as I should have. And so for me, it wasn't a huge failure. Like it didn't like break my business or anything, but like it definitely taught me that like, you know, staying in your own lane, like I can make really good money with flips and rental property. I understand those. So why not go more all into those things as opposed to being like, Ooh, this is kind of shiny over here and I can make a bunch of money. So why don't we try that? And so kind of thinking about it, that was to me, my biggest kind of failure was just not staying in my own lane. Like I'm already, I've already got a good business. I've got good income, like just go more all in on that as opposed to kind of chasing the next big thing. Yeah. I mean, if you can replicate even half the success you did on this five house package, I mean, you'll have a great income. So it's about focusing on what you're good at and focusing on that one thing and kind of letting other things slide. Because if you're focused on Bitcoin over here, Amazon business over here, real estate agent, real estate (laughs) investing, it just gets overwhelming. You don't have enough hours and you'll generally just fail at each one. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. I even like, it's funny you said that. Cause I even looked at the Amazon thing too. I was like, Ooh, Amazon seller. That's interesting. And, oh, this guy's making half a million a month. Like, how do I get into that? And it's just, you go down these rabbit holes of, you know, I think as entrepreneurs, like that, that have that mindset of just constantly learning, you know, you always want to try to figure out the next best thing, but sometimes you're just better off staying with where you're at and going down that road all in, which is now what I'm doing. I'm going to go all in with this. Yeah, I agree. So last thing, our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether that's financial, lifestyle, or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? Uh, Freedom to me is being able to tell my kids no, because I can, not because I have to, has been like my biggest like thing. Like, that's just how I look at life. Like, I want to be able to, to say no for the right reasons, not because dad can't afford something or I can't do this or that. So for me, freedom is that. And then just literally being able to choose what I do every day. Like I can't tell you how many times I've, this probably sounds bad, especially for you hustlers that hustle 25 hours a day. Like there's days where I'm like, I'm going to go play golf today. And then I go play golf and I don't think about, you know, I'm not worried that I'm not, you know, making this much or that, or doing this or that. I just, I'm like, I want to do this today. And then I go do it. Or I take my kids, you know, to their sports practice and all that stuff. And to me, that's freedom, just being able to choose whatever you're doing every day and being totally okay with that, you know? Right. Because you have your real estate agent team members that are, you know, going on appointments and writing up contracts for you. You have your apartment income coming in. So it's not a big stress to golf on a Wednesday afternoon. Right. hundred percent. Yep. Well, I want to wrap it up by just asking where can listeners get a hold of you? Um, I think social media for me, 
through Facebook Messenger is a great way. I mean, everybody is welcome to message me anytime, ask questions. I'm more than happy to share how I've done something. Um, I've made plenty of mistakes. I mean, I've made a ton of them. Um, so through social media, feel free to direct message me or just get a hold of us through our real estate website that we're going to post. Um, just send us a message there as well. Yeah, and we'll put all those links in the description, the show notes. Well, Daniel, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, your local expertise, national expertise, and I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. All right. See you, bud. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review and tune in next week for the next episode.